As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. A vote of no confidence in the club's board followed Leeds' 4-1 defeat at Bournemouth on Sunday. Manager Javi Gracia, only hired in February, could be sacked with just four games left of the season. The Leeds fans behind me are shouting, you're not fit to wear the shirt. They are not happy. So how did we get here from Bielsa Ball and all the optimism? And has it become an all too familiar story about how to sink a Premier League football club? I'm Ian Irving and this is the Athletic Football Podcast. Okay, joining us today on this one then are Leeds United correspondent Phil Hay and also senior news reporter Matt Slater. Thank you for giving up your bank holiday Mondays to talk about Leeds United, you two. Phil, obviously I'll start with you. You were at Bournemouth, um, another really disappointing display and result for Leeds. Can you just paint the picture of the the end of that game? Um, because I think that probably tells the story of the mood at the club at the moment perfectly. It paints the picture of all hope gone, really, for for this season, but I also think for the, the regime at Leeds, I, I've said on a few podcasts over the past few weeks that this feels and looks very much like a regime that is absolutely at the end of its cycle. Um, and this has been building for several weeks. You could say it's been building for, for several months. If you go back to October, you'll find games where the crowd were um, turning on Jesse Marsh, were, were looking for a change of head coach at, at that point, you know, literally two or three months into the season. There's never been any impetus. There's never been any momentum. There was a period or a moment under Javi Gracia after a win over Nottingham Forest where it felt like he, he had the lead in his hand and he had the, the beast under control. But the way in which it's fallen apart since then has been catastrophic, really, for, for the season. And, you know, Leicester, to my mind, felt like the, the, the one I'll draw last week, like the damage had been done in that fixture. And, and you started to, in your head, to calculate where the points were going to come from, where Leeds were likely to get to. And, and you got the feeling that in order for them to stay up, there was going to need to be a truly desperate total, you know, amounted by somebody below them. But Bournemouth really was, um, it kind of capped it all. And, and I think the image that will stay with me from that game was the players at full time taking a battering from the away end. And standing there, staring back and doing nothing, you know, not sure whether to applaud apologetically in the way that players do, not sure whether to, I, I suppose, to, to contest the dissent that was coming their way, just frozen yeah. and lost 
in a lot of ways. And, you know, there was dissent towards the board again at Bournemouth. There was dissent towards director of football, Victor Otter. That's nothing new. That's been going on for the past few games. That's been in the background and rumbling for a long time. And I think as well, more telling than anything else, the, the, the private message that Andrea Arrizani, the club's chairman, sent to a fan on Twitter describing the performance as shit and ridiculous and saying it was his fault. It makes you feel that the pessimism on the outside is only as severe as the pessimism on the inside. And if you're asking where the fight back is coming from, it's impossible to answer because it doesn't look like it's coming from anywhere. No, none of those details paint a great picture, do they, at all? And there's lots of them uh, in your piece as well, which is up on The Athletic now after that defeat at Bournemouth, which again point to an unhappy club, an unhappy situation and a difficult one to get out of. Um, looking in from the outside, Matt, it's difficult to see how Leeds get themselves out of this, isn't it? I think Phil's explained it perfectly. I mean, it's very sad. I mean, if you're you know, if you're a Leeds fan, of course, it's very sad. But, um, you know, even, even as a neutral, I know they're not everyone's cup of tea. You know, I think they're they're one of the country's great clubs. I think there was real hope and optimism when they re-established themselves in the Premier League, had a good first season back. I think it felt that, this, that Leeds United belong. Leeds United are should be, um, I mean, nothing's given, right? But they, they felt they could enrich the, the Premier League, that they were, it, it was a benefit to everyone to have Leeds United there. And, um, you know, last season wasn't great, but they got a reprieve on the last day, fair enough. And I think, you know, I certainly thought they would be better for it. But this year's just been, um, been been tough to watch from the outside. And, you know, I spend a lot of time on this podcast and in the stuff that I write talking about football clubs as businesses. I mean, that's sort of kind of my, my gig, isn't it? I just look at Leeds United and just see a football club that has just made really bad football decisions. And we must never forget that. That, yes, increasingly they behave like businesses. They're talked about like businesses. It's an asset class now and a great defensive hedge against economic headwinds. And we talk, you know, I have endless conversations with people trying to explain to me what private equity is doing here and why it's popular and blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, it's a sports competition and you've got to make really good sporting decisions. And I just don't think Leeds have made many of those over the last couple of years. And that catches up with you pretty fast in the Premier League. There's still an argument raging in Leeds about whether it was the right decision to sack Marcelo Bielsa last February, 14, 15 months ago. And I think more than anything, that that's driven by the fact that it was the best of times under Bielsa. I mean, genuinely the best of times. And a lot of supporters feel like that's been stolen from them because of the, the position the club are in now. If you're objective about it, I think you have to say that, that it was not going well for Bielsa towards the end. There were reasons why a board would have moved for a head coach at that point. Whether or not you think he was back properly, had the right squad, whatever else, you know, they, they were in serious danger of going down under him. So you could almost say that this isn't so much about the decision to sack Bielsa. It's about the decisions that have been made since sacking him and the way in which Bielsa leaving and the, the club moving on from that point has, has been managed. And the decisions, quite honestly, in, in a lot of respects, have been dismal. I mean, Jesse Marsh was quite evidently, I think, not the right choice with hindsight. And and the point to make about Marsh is that Leeds specifically wanted him. You know, he was absolutely the, the, the coach that they wanted. Of all the coaches out there in, in Europe and elsewhere, he was the one that they wanted. They recruited the squad to fit his model. It hasn't worked. They had that strange interim period between Marsh being sacked, too late in my view, but Marsh being sacked, Grassi being appointed where... They kind of dallied with options elsewhere, Iriola, Vallecano, and then went for a caretaker, Michael Scubala, their under-21 coach, for one game, which was a disaster at, at Everton, um, after he'd been kind of formally 
given that that chance. And they've ended up with Garcia and it hasn't all knitted together. It's a kind of textbook example of how clubs get into trouble and how Premier League clubs end up going down. I, I really think it is. Yeah, it definitely feels like that, certainly. And it's the noise off the pitch as well, of course, as well. The voices of discontent that are growing with the situation at Leeds. I mean, how significant is the vote of no confidence that came from the Leeds United supporters advisory board over the weekend? In, in practical terms, they can't force the club to do anything. It's not as if a vote of no confidence from the SAB leads to um, decisions or votes at boardroom level about who stays, who goes. Um, I mean, we'll Will they listen, though, Phil? It's very difficult to ignore it. I think at this late stage of the season, and also we'll come on to this, but given that there is the, the prospect of a takeover in the background, evidently complicated by the circumstances at the moment, but it people almost know that change is afoot or potentially afoot. And perhaps you've seen that in the fact that a lot of the chanting at the game, a lot of the dissent at the game has been aimed towards Victor Orta, the director of football, rather than Andrea Radrizani. And I've found myself wondering over the past few weeks whether... People realise that Radrazani is very close to exiting here, and actually, you you'd almost be chanting for the you know the departure of someone who will sell up if the circumstances are right. Whereas with Orta, there is the question about does he stay on as director of football under a different regime under a new broom, and it almost feels as if there is that insistence from the crowd that that shouldn't happen. You know that can't happen. That there needs to be substantial change at, at senior management level. And, you know, the dissent is rising. I think the crowd have been really patient this year as, as they were last year. But eventually, voices need to be heard. And I think that's where we are at the moment. Matt, can you just explain to anyone who listening who's not aware how exactly the power is broken down at Leeds and, and in ownership as well? Yeah, it's a good question. Forgive me if I get some of the dates here wrong, Phil. Just jump in. So... Andrea Reggiani, Italian businessman, uh, made his money in, in media businesses, um, bought the club early 2017, was it? That's correct, yes. Bought it from Massimo Cellini, uh, Cellino, another, another Italian uh, businessman, f- serial football club entrepreneur, interesting guy. Um, Phil, I think, uh, made a living writing about him for a while. Um, and what a living it was. Um, so anyways, we, we say goodbye to Cellino. We got, we got Reggiani, bought Leeds, languishing, stuck in the championship, this sort of... Uh, probably the poster child of the of the sleeping giants, 49ers Enterprises. Now, that, it's quite interesting. They are, if you like, the sort of side hustle investment arm of the family that owns the San Francisco 49ers, incredibly successful, highly regarded NFL team. The family that owns them, the Yorks, um, put an awful lot of faith in a, in a, in a, in a businessman called Parag Murata, who's a very, very smart guy, uh, he is, I think, the executive vice president of football operations at the 49ers, which is a full-time job for most people that hold that position at other NFL teams, and also runs this investment arm called 49ers Enterprises. It is an old-fashioned syndicate approach. You know, you have a sort of lead guy who gets, you know, a lot of the media attention, but behind them will be a lot of kind of passive investors, people who are quite happy to stay in the background. They might even be investing more than the, the principal. Similar situation at Chelsea, of course, with Todd Bowley. So Parag Marata has been, well, 49 Enterprises bought a 10% stake in 2018. So sort of a year or so into the Rajasani era. Um, didn't do much for a while. And I remember talking to them at the time. We are here to learn. This is a strategic investment in a club we think has considerable upside should not be in that division, but we're not going to go in and throw our weight around. We don't know anything about football, English football yet. We're going to learn. 
And they did. They didn't do much for a couple of years. Then we get to things are cooking at Leeds, Bielsa, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The 49ers guys make two further share purchases, putting money in, equity into the club that has taken them to, I think, about 44%. And this has been a structured takeover with, with stages. There was always a plan for a complete takeover. Goes both ways. It's a mutual option. So Rajazani and Parag Marata and his and his associates at the 49ers Enterprises Group have some control over this. But I think the deal was always, we're going to buy it in January 2024. Now, over the last year, probably over the last 18 months, I think the 49ers, particularly when things were looking quite good, and this club might be now an established Premier League team, and we've got plans, we've learned enough now, we know we need to do something to Ellen Road. I think they wanted to do it sooner. And I, 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 in fact, I know they wanted to do it sooner. This summer. So the, the takeover was going to be brought forward at least six months. One massive stumbling block. Huge stumbling block. At no point, and I find this very, very strange, because I've I talk to people that do takeovers all the time, and there are different prices at different places. Rajazani and the 49ers never agreed a championship price. They never agreed a post-relegation price. It was almost like they didn't want to have that conversation. I don't think Rajazani wanted to have that conversation. He had a number in mind, and the number was, we're a Premier League club. And the 49ers, whether it was out of politeness or naivety, didn't negotiate a second price. And we are now in limbo. You also have the aspect um, in Radrazani's mind of the difference in price and, and the difference in money that he stands to earn if he sells in the Premier League and uh, if he sells in, in the Championship. And more and more, when I speak to people, you get the sense that if they go down, Radrazani might be minded to try and stick around as, my, as majority shareholder with the intention of doing what Burnley have done, what Sheffield United have managed to do this season, which is using parachute payments, using the sale of players who inevitably you have to sell, you know, you, you're too good for that division. So you sell them, you take the money to, to compile a squad that can get you out of the league. Your valuation, you know, your, your valuation picks up again and, and returns yeah. to the level that it's at. So as Matt says, we've written and spoken a lot about the takeover over the past six to 12 months, but suddenly you're in a position where it becomes quite hard to give it any context because it feels as if it is, entirely weighted now and dependent on what happens in these four games and uh, you know that will influence a huge amount from ownership structure in the boardroom obviously to things like stadium development and so on you know which is a core part of the 49ers enterprises plan they're simply not going to push ahead if they're in the championship it'll be delayed again looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. 
Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. It was too much for us. Uh, the same situations, we are living the same situations than the last games, the last performances. Uh, conceding soft goals and if we are not uh, stronger, if we are not more aggressive, uh, it's, it's difficult to to defend well and to attack. Let's home well. in on these four games that are left then. Phil, how likely do you think it is that Javi Garcia is going to be in charge for these four matches? I mean, as we, we talk at the moment, the, the club are kind of firefighting on the PR front Um uh, over a video that emerged over the weekend of the players leaving the team hotel in Bournemouth and some of them heads down, headphones on, looking at their phones, ignoring the supporters um, who were there. Um, What's the truth behind that, Phil, as well? Because, you know, we had one with Arsenal a couple of weeks ago and it turned out that was a big explanation for exactly, you know, wider context to it. Do you know what actually was going on there? There, there are always fine lines with these things because clearly the players are leaving to go to the game. So the boss has to leave at a certain time. The, the priority is to get yourself to the game prepared and everything else. And I think everybody understands that. It, it wasn't the, the case that every single player going through the foyer ignored the supporters who were there. But as you can see on the, the video, clearly some did. Some had headphones on, some were looking at their phones, just oblivious to what was going around on around them. And it's a seriously bad look. You know, it looks mm. ignorant. It looks socially detached. It just looks weird. It's like weird behaviour, considering that you're all supposed to have common ground and you're all supposed to be, you know, cut from the same cloth as either Leeds United supporters or Leeds United players. You know, they're... they're and they need each other at the moment as well, well more they, than they, ever, they, don't they? They absolutely yeah. do. And when you're in as much of a hole as Leeds are in, playing as poorly as Leeds are playing and the results going as badly as they are. These are aggravating factors. You know, these are factors that absolutely make it worse. So that's been something for the club to deal with. Um, in terms of Gracia, one to watch with great interest on, on the basis that changing with four games to go might well achieve absolutely nothing. I mean, the, the die may be cast already. And if you look at the fixtures in particular, there's an argument to be said that, you know, the damage really is done. But then again, what other cards can they play? You know, they it's not as if there's much in the squad that they can turn to that they haven't been using already. It's not as if they can vastly redraw this team and come up with a completely different tactical strategy for the four games that are left. The one, you know, the one spin of the wheel would be to get another head coach. But I just think in a season that's gone badly wrong, it would be the most damning indictment of of the entire process that at this late stage you were thinking, do you know what, we might just have to throw another Hail Mary? That's the problem, isn't it? If you do change and it doesn't work, it just underlines quite how much of a mess it all feels like it is and it, it deepens that again, doesn't it? Um, what's changed since half-time against Crystal Palace, Phil? Because... Actually, the start that Gracia made was was pretty promising. The results have picked up. There was wins in there. I remember interviewing uh, Ilan Melier myself, previewing that game against Crystal Palace after that Forest win. And there was sort of a genuine calmness and, and sense of control about Leeds' situation. But it seems like since that half-time against Palace, it's been, they've been a different football team almost. It's a great question and a great way of putting it because I, I honestly felt in that game, like in the second half, I was watching a different game and a different team that had no correlation mm. at all to the, the what had gone on prior to, to half-time. And the headline on the piece that we ran afterwards was Leeds United dissolves in 30 minutes. 
And I was talking about the game, but actually, in the end, it looks like it's, it's talking about the season and the running because it everybody seems completely baffled by it. And I have to say with, with Gracia, when you ask him, he cannot explain it. You know, he, he cannot give you a clear and concise explanation for why it seemed to be so in order um, up to about minute 45 against Palace. It seemed as if it was under control. Tactically, it seemed to be working. They were really rigid and organised, weren't they? It was almost like that was the signpost of the good work that Gracia was doing, the fact that they had got themselves sorted. It's I mean, there was, a, there, was, there was a bit of a groundswell that week, including from me, to say, look, if, if this carries on and, and the football is as kind of sensible and as steady as it's been, then perhaps slightly longer term, without you know needing to rush into an appointment or to, to say that Gracia should be the answer years and years down the line, perhaps longer term leads might benefit from this. But as it is, there's simply no way that they could appoint him with any credibility now, I don't think. It's gone so badly wrong, and I, I don't want to pin this all to him at all. You know, even the process of appointing him, they sacked Marsh at the beginning of February. They went for Areola. They talked about Arna Slot at Feyenoord. They brought over Alfred Schroeder, who'd been sacked by Ajax a couple of weeks earlier. The dissent on Twitter towards him was very obvious, so he went home. Then they gave Skubala a run as caretaker, at which point the the realisation dawned that actually we need a, a head coach in place. So it ended up being Gracia. And I don't think there's any way in which you can paint those as circumstances in which a head coach is likely to thrive. But even so, it did feel after the Forest game as if he had this in hand. The irritating thing for Leeds, Matt, is that it just feels like a classic case of a team that gets relegated, doesn't it? You know, I know that the position at the moment, pending Leicester-Everton later, you know, Leeds are a couple of places above the relegation zone as we speak now, that they could get closer later on, of course, depending on how that result goes. But none of this sounds like a club who are going in the right direction, does it? All of it feels like something we've seen before at other teams who have ended up going down. The only note of optimism that I can strike is there's a, a few other really bad teams at the moment who have yeah. horribly lost their way and they're shambles too. So it kind of reminds me a little bit like kind of they often say the 100 metre sprint. It's not about uh, sort of who's kind of running fastest at the end. It's who's slowing down slowest, right? You know, you kind of hit your top speed at 60 and after that, you're just hanging on. The one or two that survive, it's going to be, there's going to be no glory in it. They're going to, they're going to, it's sort of a, they're going to have limped over the line. So that's about the only, the only positive I can think of um, the games that Leeds have got to play, they're, they're clearly the toughest, I think, of, of the of the guys down there. I know everyone everyone focuses on managers, right? It's we, we do this in the media all the time. Yeah, and it, it clearly hasn't worked. I, I think I didn't think Jesse Marsh was very good either. The players, the players, right? They just they look like a championship team to me. I, I um, still I still feel as well that the spine of the team, the backbone of the team, is still the backbone of the team as it was in two thousand and twenty when they got promoted. Give or take, you know, you yeah. Liam Coopers, you Luke Aylins. Um, if Stuart Dallas was fit, which he hasn't been for a year because he had a really nasty femur injury, um, he would be in the side, and he'd be another one that you're relying on. And you know, these players are are moving on in age now. Um, you know, they they they're not going to be here for too much longer. They're not going to be here forever. So you would have expected in that period that you would have developed a new spine, you know, a new skeleton of the team that you can depend on. We we I go on the, the Square Ball podcast now, my own one as well, on, on a Thursday with The Athletic, and we always joke on there about um, the presenter Dan talks about Leeds always having one in them, you know, this idea that they can go and create a bit of madness and a bit of mayhem. And, and that was certainly true of them under Bielsa, as much as they were a fantastic team under Bielsa. When things got difficult, you know, you still had that potential in them. And even last season, there was that little bit of spark. 
But I just don't think it's there. Now, I just don't think that potential for madness in this team, you know, positive madness, exists. And the big risk for them is that it's City away this weekend. It's Newcastle at home the following weekend. If, as is quite likely, they lose both of those games, it's inconceivable that the table won't have shifted. And I think inconceivable that by that stage they won't be in the bottom three. See, Phil, the question I, I would ask, and you're so much closer to it than me, is at some point, a year, 18 months ago, there does appear to have been a real push on you know, the type of thing we've seen so many other places, younger players, right, with, with resale value, right? We're going we're gonna to scour... We're going to find young players. Great, wonderful, wonderful idea. None of them appear to have really paid off. I know it's and the young players. I mean, when are they supposed to pay off? You know, how long do you give them? But none of them, apart from maybe Nonto, you know, look look like it's going to work. So that's that's the first thing. So whose call was that? Was that already a 49ers type decision? Because they got two guys on the board. You know, I've mentioned Parag Morata, but Peter Lowy's there. He's one of the guys that's putting a lot of money into this takeover, if and when it happens. He's already put money in. So is that already, okay, guys, this is how we're going to do it. You know, the American coach. I know we've we've discussed it before. Whose call was that, really? And then I think the other bit, of course, is the American players. So for a time, it looked like they were trying to recreate the old Fulham vibe of being Team America. And of those American players... I think only Tyler Adams is any good. Certainly on the basis of this season, the only one who's looked good. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that while the 49ers have supported quite a lot of this, um, they haven't specifically pushed for the American angle. And recruitment at Leeds is, is essentially dictated by Victor Orta, the director of football. Now, obviously, what Orta does and what he's able to do is dictated above him by the budget, yeah, by the, the money he has to spend and everything else. And there's no pretending that Leeds are operating in the bracket, the transfer market, that they would like to or would probably need to be in order to be to be better off in, in the table. But you're right to say that a lot of signings haven't worked as they needed to do. And, and I think Leeds are a club who like to have longer term ideas, bigger ideas, like to be seen to have longer term ideas. I think in some respects, like to see, be seen to be clever with what they're, they're doing. The problem is that somebody put this very well on Twitter, I thought, where they said the, the kind of paradox of the Premier League is that if you try to plan for the future and if you if everything is predicated on planning for the future, the Premier League doesn't always let you have that future. So you're almost planning for a future you might not have. And I think if there's there's several lessons to come out of the last two years, but I think one of them is that it's no matter how much you try to plan ahead for the medium term or the long term, you have to manage the short term at the same time. Otherwise, none of what you plan for further down the line is going to be easy to to deliver. A great example being stadium development. You know, you can have great plans for stadium development in the in the future, but if Leeds go down into the EFL. They're not building a 50,000-seater stadium in the AFL. They just aren't. You know, financially, it would make no sense um, because of the, the priorities elsewhere, things they would have to focus on getting promoted. But also, the further you go down the leagues, tends to be found, the fewer seats you need. You know, so if you have these if you have these strategies that go over medium to long term, and every club kind of needs them, and I think for a club who don't have a huge budget, the idea of finding good value players who appreciate and value and, and make you money further down the line is a good one, but it's only good if it works. And I and I always find myself thinking as well, no matter how much money you make, how much money you bring in, clubs should spend every penny they have anyway, and more. You know, so 
where where in the end does does it take you? Leicester are a great example of that, aren't they? They made a fortune over the years from big sales, and you know as much chance of going down this season as Leeds. Absolutely. Ultimately, there's nothing more important than results on the pitch, is there? That is should or should be really the main objective of every team. It's really unfashionable that, though, isn't it? You know, it's become really yeah. unfashionable for anybody to say, actually, do you know what? The here and now really matters. And the only time at which people suddenly concede that the here and now matters is days like yesterday when you're at Bournemouth. Now, and yeah. Actually, if you don't win this, what are the consequences? And the consequences are, are pretty severe. But by that point, it's often too late. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. What are the consequences this season of relegation, Matt, for Leeds and the other sort of huge football clubs that are battling against the drop at the moment? Well, it's never a good idea, uh, if you can at all avoid it. Um, Well, look, I suppose the starkest thing, we'll just do the money, right? So um, nearly every club in the Premier League gets about £100 um, in broadcast money. There's a a standard award that everyone gets, it's equal. And then on top of that, you get a merit-based payment, which is, you know, a couple of million, two and a half, I think now, maybe three even, uh, a place. And you get a facility fee which is the number of times you're on TV. And everyone is on a minimum amount of times, but of course the bigger clubs are on more often. So the facility fee makes up 25% of your overall broadcast package from the Premier League. Uh, the merit-based payments make up 25%. The standard award that everyone gets is, is 50. So let's just say it's about 100 million. It's actually a bit less, but anyway, 90, about 85, 90, I think. So a parachute payment... A year one parachute payment is 55% of the standard Premier League award. A year two parachute payment is 45%. And if you had stayed in the Premier League for more than a season, uh, you get a year three payment, which is 20%. So Leeds are looking at right now, if, 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 you know, if, if they go down, and if they don't immediately bounce back, at around 45 million quid next year, TV money for the Premier League, and then about 30-something, and then about, you know, and they go down from there. Now, that's a huge reduction. I think in the last set, last year, they made about £120 million for, in broadcasting money. They did, Leeds have always done well commercially. This is one of the reasons the 49ers like them. They sell shirts. Club. They have yeah. fans around the world, right? Absolutely. And eyeballs, and et cetera, et cetera. You know, one club city. Uh, though Ellen Road is old and small now, in terms of its, its relative peer group or where it would like to be. They've been packing it, so match day's not bad. But broadcast income is hugely important to Leeds. And yeah, they're going to lose... They're going to lose about... Uh, 40, about 75 million of it next year if they went down. Huge. And what we have seen, though, I think in the last few years, it's always been an issue, but, but particularly post-COVID... Most of the relegated teams have really tried, gone for it. We've got to get straight back. And they, and almost like one and a half to two out of three have, have, is worked. So, you know, Burnley and Sheffield United, but we've seen Norwich, we've seen Fulham, we've seen West Brom previously bounce back. There's been lots of bounce back ability. So I suspect, and this is, this is, this is no, like, you know, wow, amazing, amazing observation. Leeds United would be all in on a, on a year one bounce back. 
and would have a really good chance, actually. Which, again, comes back to you know what we were saying about potentially Radrazani's thinking of if if they get relegated, yeah. does he does he stick with this? I mean, Leeds are not a club who are going to be caught. I mean, clearly they, they cannot sustain the same level of wage bill in the Championship that they've got in the Premier League. Nobody can, but they're not a club who who should be caught out badly by the cost of, or, or at least the, the height of wages. Now, there will be wage reductions. There are wage reductions in most, mm-hmm. if not yeah. all, of the contracts that the, the players at Leeds have, and, and they'll be implemented if and when they, they go down. That that would happen. But I think Matt's right. I, I could see nothing other than a, a kind of throw-everything-at-season-one attitude in, in the hope that, yes, you get relegated, but before you know it, you're back up um, and you're you're involved in the Premier League again. Because they cannot afford to drift. And, and if one club knows what it's like to drift in, in the EFL, it's Leeds. You know, 16 mm. years of being in the EFL. And it's not putting it mildly to say that it was utter carnage in, over those yeah. 16 years. You know, just mayhem from start to finish. Um, and they, they just cannot go back to that. Just on, on relegation, so obviously everyone focuses on the broadcast income because that's the most significant part of it. But they'll, all their commercial deals will have relegation clauses too. So, you know, I think it was 44, 45 million they earned commercially, which is good. You know, that's, that's, that's solid. That's sort of top, certainly top half of the Premier League. Um, that would come down. Um, and Phil's already mentioned, you know, would they, would they fill Ellen Road? Every day, every they probably probably They'd would actually, chance, yeah. yeah, they probably would. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe the match day wouldn't matter too much, but commercially they'd lose some as, as well. So that's something else to, to to factor in. And just on that, look, I really don't think if Leeds go down, we are looking at another sixteen years. You never know. No. I, I, I find I find I, I would find that unusual because there's a lot of bad ownership. And I just think Leeds now have gained something from the last couple of years, even if right now it's hard to discern. But um, those 16 years really hurt the fabric of the club. So so if you think about when was the last time they spent any money on Ellen Road? It's the 90s, isn't it? The East Stand? They, they developed that, in the 2000s um, oh, on sorry, the Ken Bates. Okay. They, they did the East Stand. But it, it, you know, that, even that is kicking on for 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's my oh, point, yeah. right? So when you're, in the, when you're in the championship, you're not doing any of that. And it hurts the club. It hurts you sort of, you know, three, four, five years down the road. All their hospitality needs to be upgraded. It needs to be a bit bigger because they, they they can clearly fill it. You can do much better stuff. You can get people staying there longer, better food, beverage. We've seen that elsewhere. So that Ellen Road is so badly needs work. And even their training ground. I remember going to that twenty odd years ago, and it was good. It's not. It's not. You know, it's, it's, it was better than good. It was state. Of the yeah, it's bang, it's bang average now, isn't it? But that's that's because if you don't do anything to it for twenty years, it moves on. Nobody turns up to Thorpe Arch now and says this is state of the art. It's good. You know, it's perfectly good. Um, but it's very easy to find better ones um, throughout the league. And that's a sign of the investment that other clubs have had as well. I mean, you don't have to look at Leicester's training ground. Mm. It's like it's like something from out of space, to be honest, um, the investment that there's been there. J- just to sort of home in on, the, on how depressing relegation would be for Leeds, Phil. I mean, we've sort of talked there about 16 years away and this incredible sort of romance of their resurgence back to the English top flight, back where they belong and, and everything that came with it. I mean, how much would this just undermine all of that to to be relegated just a, a year or two afterwards? Well, that's what I think would hurt most, is that it's not as if they kind of stumbled out of the championship without much of a plan or, you know, a, a kind of vague plan that came together and, and just about worked. It was almost perfection with Bielsen. It felt like perfection. And I've never seen the fan bases engaged in a, a coach or, you know, a, a project as they were 
in that. It was it was proper romance with him. There's no pretending it didn't go wrong towards the end. But I think there is a feeling that everything that was built up in that period, not least, you know, the goodwill, has, has kind of been burned and, and is gone. And and there's a bit of bewilderment, I think, about the fact that it's come to this, you know, that that they had it, they've lost it. Um, You know, that, that weird sensation of people starting to say, quite like Leeds, you know, quite like watching Leeds because of Bielsa, you know, and there is nobody in Leeds who wants Leeds United to be anybody else's second club. They're quite happy, you know. It's nice to be something admired though, isn't it? I think that's it, you see. I, I think what it is, is that it was nice to be sat there thinking, we have something that other people mm. want. Begrudging respect. Yeah, yeah. That, that you you would find when Newcastle had Steve Bruce, for example, and Mike Ashley, that you would see people in Newcastle saying, you look at what's going on at Leeds and there's some magic there. You know, that's that's what we're kind of asking for. And then suddenly now there's nobody who wants what Leeds have got because, you know, it, it looks like it's only going in, in one direction. And it was never going to be forever the Bielsa era. It couldn't have been forever. But the legacy of it should have been different to this. It should have been. Remember, you can subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 a month for a year at theathletic.com forward slash football pod. But thank you for listening and we'll be back with another episode tomorrow. Bye-bye. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favourite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.